Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. Today I'm announcing the United States is targeting the main artery of Russia's economy. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. That means Russian oil will no longer be acceptable at U.S. ports, and the American people will deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine. All right, that was the president, Gibbsy, dropping the hammer. We're taking the tiger out of the tank, and we're sickening it on oil-exporting kleptocrat Vladimir Putin. I think uh, that's a little upshift, and I'm curious about how it'll play with the American voters who are already growling at high gas prices. Yeah, no doubt. Who do we have to decode all of that using high-tech algorithms and whatnot? We have the king of swing, the master comparer of the margin of error, super pollster, Democratic stalwart, and 30-year friend of mine, and of this show, the great pollster Mark Melman is here. Hey, Mark. Thank you very much, Mike. Thanks for that great introduction. Uh, oh, I know you're working on that Vegas act with your old accordion, so I'm trying to work up the, <laughs> yeah. I got the, the, the monkey, the stage. grinder, and the uh, accordion <laughs> all ready to go. A little behind the scenes here. We we killed Murphy, what Murphy was going to say. And just to be clear, kids, in like eight seconds, because that's just how Murphy's mind works, he came up with something just as clever, just as quick. So uh, it, basically the woke squad did an intervention here. I got canceled <laughs> on my own goddamn podcast. But anyway, first of all, let me say to start the discussion, and Gibbs and Melman, you take it from there. I like this policy. I think there's a way to make it a political win, but You know, a note to President Biden, enough with the enthusiasm. I mean, it was unbelievable. He was mumbling like a hostage video. What's wrong? He should call for a national crusade to punish Putin. We're not going to fund his war crimes. We're going to cut off his damn oil. And if we have to pay a little bit more at the pump, I know Americans are up to it for the good result. Or am I wrong? Is it a disaster? And he ought to act like he doesn't want to announce it. No, I think it, look, first of all, I think this is a smart move from a policy perspective. It's a huge, um, we're not as dependent on foreign oil as the Europeans and others are. Um, but if you're going to really strike us at the heart of the Russian economy, you, you have to do energy. And to your point, I, I think, and I'm dying to hear Melman on this, but I think you really, <laughs> he's got to sound enthusiastic. He's got to sound strong. Um, because we know the downside of this, right? We've seen this gas prices, according to AAA are up 63 cents in 12 days. And by the way, no end is in sight, but I I think he's got to lead that crusade. He's got to get people into this and he's got to let people understand that if you're paying more at your corner gas station, it's because of Vladimir Putin. There's going to be plenty of time for that. The reality is we know the polling says 75% thereabouts of the American people favor uh, sanctioning this oil, stopping oil imports, even if it increases gas prices. Now, that's what the poll question says. So everybody interprets that as saying, well, so people aren't going to mind. The truth is, six months from now, three months from now, depending on if things are going in Ukraine, depending on what's, what's happening in the world, uh, if gas prices are at $6 a gallon, my guess is people are not going to be very happy. Uh, and it will be up to the administration then to remind them that the reason that those gas prices are so high is because we had to go after Putin, and that's all part of the deal. So the reality is the, the economic impact of this is, is serious and will matter politically. Um, but right now, people are saying this is a policy they want, even intellectually, if they understand that it's going to mean higher gas prices. 
Yeah, I just, I mean, I agree with that. I, I think, I think it's a, you know, how long can it last issue? As a political hack, though, I'm thinking if I'm Biden, one, I want to do it to curb Putin, and two, gas prices are already high. I was rolling down Gibbs's favorite neighborhood of Beverly Hills the other day, looking at the uh, where he gets his sharkskin suits at the custom tailor, and gas was well over six dollars there. Um, so people are mad about gas prices now. So why not pivot the energy? You know, uh, make it about Putin. So make it a crusade. And the, 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 my companion to it is Biden, they're shipping a lot of arms in there. There was a big David Sanger piece yesterday in the New York Times with, you know, all kinds of granular detail, what color the crates were and, you know, who's flying what. And it was all good. But Biden ought to be doing that update, you know, showing action and strength. I just think they're missing an opportunity to take something tricky and put a bunch of public momentum behind it, leveraging off those polling data to score well they can before it starts to melt away. And uh, it's the usual thing with this White House. They just, they they like kind of no-frills, Costco, steel shelf communications. There's never any sparkle or artistry to it. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm just grumpy about that stuff, but I, I think it hurts them. Well, you guys are the kings of sparkle here, so I'm not going <laughs> to go down that road. Leave Gibbs's little special leotard out of this. <laughs> well, I see he's putting it on right now. But the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but the reality is Biden deserves a tr- huge amount of credit, a vast amount of credit for putting this coalition together internationally, yep, I agree. for bringing the Europeans on board, for bringing the Americans on board. Um, this has been a huge effort on his part, an extraordinarily successful effort on his part. He's not getting the credit for it that he deserves, but I'm not sure that there's anybody else that could have done this uh, in these circumstances. Whether there is or not, he's certainly done it. He's done it in a really superb way. Look, I actually agree as a frequent critic. Uh, I totally agree with that. And I'm happy to say we just got a telegram that you are back on the Christmas card list uh, there, Melvin, at the <laughs> White House. But it's true. He has done a good job. I just don't think he is going to get any credit for him the way politics works now unless he beats his own drum loud and proud. Yeah, But you're well, right on the merit. I agree with that. Two things on this. Totally agree with Mark and you, Murphy, um, that the orchestration has been solid. Uh, really solid. And I don't think others could have put this together the way he has. And if you look at it again, Europe and, and, and Great Britain are much, much more dependent on Russian gas and energy. And you've got already today, because I think they've done a really good job of making sure these are, are synchronized in sanctions. So it doesn't look like we're split off uh, from the rest of the world if we try to go beforehand. But, you know, uh, the British are, are phasing out Russian oil between now and the end of 2022, which makes sense for their economy. So I, I well, a little easier for them too. God, God save the queen, but they've got the North sea oil reserves. It really fair. crushes the Germans and the continental Europeans, but the Germans, I mean, yeah. I don't know who's going to want to claim this accomplishment in the end, but for 50 years, the Russians have been all about dividing Europe and never letting the Germans rearm. And the, you know, as the Germans are back in the Panzer business now, which is a huge defeat to the uh, uh, to them, and they're going to take the heat on the oil weapon. You're absolutely right. But Mark, you touched on something that I think our listeners would really love to double click on, and that is: Is Biden going to get enough credit? How does he get enough credit for something that we know? And we've talked about this here in the first few minutes: the political downsides of this. I, I thought what was interesting, um, you know, he went into the State of the Union. Uh, in the Washington Post poll at, at a pretty low 
uh, number on Ukraine. I think about 33 percent approved of um, his handling thus far of the crisis in Ukraine. And, you know, it's not easy in the days of uh, where we are with polarization and, and, and whatnot. It's hard to see bumps come out of the State of the Union, but it does look like some of the initial data um, might show that Joe Biden is getting a bit of a bump here on Ukraine. W- what have you seen? What have you heard? And where do you think this is going specifically on his numbers around Ukraine? Well, it's a great question. So, look, first of all, we have to understand it is very hard to get credit in this environment for anything. Point one. Point two, you know, people look at this among along several dimensions. First, is he following a good policy? And the overwhelming majority of people, as we just suggested before, agree with the policy here. They want sanctions. They want to stop uh, importing uh, Russian oil. Uh, they don't want the U.S. involved in a direct military conflict with Russia. All the, the, out, the, the policies that Biden has pursued here are exactly what the overwhelming majority of the American public wants in terms of policy, three quarters and more of the American people. So he's doing the things that people want, them to do, want him to do. On the other hand, people look for success. And when you have those Russian, that Russian column uh, moving into, uh, 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 into Ukraine, when you have bombed out buildings in cities across the, the, the Ukrainian uh, landscape, uh, when you have children being killed, it's hard to look at that and say, cheer, stand up and cheer and say success. So people, when they say, are you, you know, do you approve or approve, disapprove of the way Biden's handling Russia? You got to look, some people look at that and say, well, how can I approve of that? That's the result. So I may agree with the policy, but I disapprove of the result. On the other hand, I can look at this in a third way and say, as I just said before, Biden's been able to orchestrate all these uh, European countries, the rest of the Western world and part of the Eastern world as well. Uh, that's a tremendous feat and give him credit for that. So to try and sum that up in one number, in one poll question, very difficult to do, very difficult to look at all those different dimensions and more that, that go into constructing whether people like what he's doing or not. I think that there is some evidence that he is getting some bump out of Ukraine for the way that, that he's handled it. Um, but again, even today, even as people are so focused on the tragedy uh, in Ukraine, even as they're so focused on the tremendous bravery and, and grit and determination of the Ukrainian people, they're still focused on domestic issues. They're still focused on what's going on here at home. And uh, we've seen, you know, since the State of the Union, we've seen a couple polls that show some increase for Biden uh, in approval rating. We've seen a couple polls that don't show increase. Historically, we don't see much increase uh, in approval ratings from from State of the Union. And and that's really what we're seeing here. Biden may be a little bit better than average in terms of the response that he's gotten, but it's hard to disentangle Ukraine on the one hand, State of the Union on the other. It all sort of blends together. All right, hold that thought. We're going to take a short break. And now a word from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Hey, Murphy, you know, relationships take a lot of work, especially. The oh, most- tell me about it, Gibbs. I put up with you and Axelrod and believe me, I need support. But Murphy, today we want to talk about the most important one you have in your life. And that is. The relationship with yourself. A lot of us will drop anything to help someone that we care about. We'll go out of our way to treat people well. But the question, Murphy, is do you give yourself the same treatment? This month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you that you matter just as much as everyone else. And therapy is a great way to make sure you show up 
for yourself. So if you're thinking this is the month you want to invest in yourself, whether it's through some therapy, whether it's coaching, whether it's better self-care, whatever it is, BetterHelp wants to remind you again that you matter just as much as everyone else. And therapy is a good way to make sure you show up for yourself. Don't delay. Take care of yourself today. So what is BetterHelp, Gibbs? I mean, I could use a little self-help and a little therapy. Murphy, it's a great question. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anybody on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try, Murphy, and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. It sounds incredible. And 2 million people, that's impressive. And they're a great sponsor of Hacks on Tap. Winter days can be long and gray right now. So go get some help. Go get something for yourself. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. And Hacks on Tap listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash hacks. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash hacks. Interestingly enough, uh, and we'll know more about this, and we'll talk about this in a second in the coming days, but um, you know, the, the NP, NPR Marist had a poll that came out Friday and showed uh, a fairly significant bump in his approval rating, went from 39 to 47%. Um, big gains, 11% among Democrats, uh, big gains among independents, 10%. Um, uh, and a real big shift, as we talked about, in Ukraine, plus 17%. Now, the question is, that poll comes out on a Friday. It's right after the State of the Union. As Mark said, right after the escalation. Is this an outlier or is it a trend? We've had a couple polls that say, uh, seems like an outlier. Politico poll this morning came out. More modest bump at 4%, uh, but still a bump nonetheless driven in larger part by his handling of the issues around Ukraine and Russia. So um, I, I think this one will be a fascinating one to watch uh, over the next little bit. And we know there's other bigger polls that are in the field right now. And I'm, I'm interested to see what happens when they come out. Well, Murphy. Gibbs, you've missed the poll we all follow. The Rasmussen report came out, Mark, uh, and they have his disapproval. He's uh, underwater by 17 points. So mark your calendars there. Yeah, well, and that's the one I don't look at, but I will say that there, there are two others that came out, one by uh, Investors Business Daily, one by Quinnipiac, showing, yep. you know, basically no change. So right. you average them all together. It's, you know, probably three points of positive movement, uh, a little more than three points. Again, that's above average. The average movement is less than one point. All right. So on the grading on a curve here, he's uh, he's getting a little bump. We're seeing more. I'm always fascinated at how the Washington parlor games of conventional wisdom are so driven by polls. I used to always joke that if I woke up one day in Beijing and they said, hey, Murphy, we, uh, we, we had a meeting and you're now the head of uh, Chinese communist overseas intelligence. What, what do you want to do on day one? I would try to bribe media pollsters because you totally set the Washington tone with this stuff, even though often you're, you're measuring ingredients rather than the than the cake you want to bake because it's early there's truth in that but i'd rather have the, the mood dictated by those polls than murphy after four drinks at the bar at the uh, <laughs> beijing hilton 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, well, no, no. Another my tie for Colonel Murphy. Yeah, I was going to say, but probably horribly entertaining for all the people listening. Definitely that. My point being, let's forecast the crazy Washington world. Little creep up maybe on average, better than history, but not dramatic. General malaise, I would say, in the Democratic world or the universe of bedwetters, as Carville would probably put it, or David Bluff. Um, what would you do, Mark, as a strategist if you were you know, in the middle of the White House saying, all right, how do we get 60 days of forward motion here and start to change that opinion, read the midterms? Victories, big policy focus on something people can understand rather than BBB, the Better Business Bureau, whatever it is. Uh, what what would your action recommendation be to them? Obviously, the stuff you can't control, too. Right. And obviously, there's a lot going on with respect to Ukraine, as we talked about. The president, I think, is doing a great job on that. Um, but I think there's a couple other things. One is something that is being done much more under the radar than it would be otherwise, because the radar is filled. The bandwidth is filled with Ukraine. But the cabinet is fanning out across the country, showing people what the impact of the infrastructure bill is uh, in every community uh, across this country. Things are happening. Bridges are being repaired. Broadband's being built. Roads are being fixed. All kinds of things are happening. Uh, and the cabinet is around the country talking about those projects, talking about the jobs they're creating, talking about the changes that they're making in people's lives. That's critically important, and that needs to continue. Uh, the other piece that I'd be very focused on is the cost of living. Obviously, that is people's primary concern at the moment, um, and the gas prices, as we talked about, feed into that. But there are policy proposals that the administration uh, has adopted and, want, and and is pushing for that will help to reduce that cost of living. Prescription drugs, one of the major areas uh, that there's legislation on the books. Um, uh, there seems to be uh, a majority of the United States Senate, including it looks like just about every Democrat, in favor of that uh, 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 prescription drug legislation or some form of prescription drug legislation. Focusing on that, a very important way to get people's minds around the fact that Democrats are trying to reduce their cost of living. That's critically important as well in the domestic agenda. Do you agree, and Gibbs curious what you think, that they never got, well, they never went out and created the credit they should have got. Maybe they're doing it now for the infrastructure deal. It got kind of crowded out on that radar screen Mark talked about by the Washington theatrics around the, in my view, horribly branded Build Back Better plan. So just when they had a huge delicious thing to cash in on politically they moved into a swamp they never really got any victories or credit for a big opportunity cost there yeah i think to mark's point though i mean the the one thing about infrastructure uh spending and infrastructure legislation is it's not a one-time thing right it's going to take a little bit of time to move that money out but then you start digging things you start building things you start repairing things so i do think there's a lot of opportunity to continue uh, to ring this bell, so to speak, and drive home the tangible benefits of something that happened. Uh, and they'll like the fact that it happened in a bipartisan manner. They'll like it even more if the road they ride on uh, is a, a bit smoother and the bridge isn't in danger of falling down. You know, Mark, one of the things I'd love to pick your brain on is, and I'm, I see this all the time, you know, on social media, on Twitter, I'm sure you have discussions we all do with our friends when somebody says, I don't understand why Joe Biden's not getting any credit for the economy. And they say, look at the jobs numbers. The jobs numbers were huge just last Friday. Um, 90% of the jobs that we lost during the pandemic seem to be back. Um, unemployment rate is at some absurdly low rate, like 3.8%. And yet 
there's this argument about, A, he's not getting enough credit. Why isn't he? Should he take more credit? How does he thread that needle? Uh, walk our listeners through some of the angst in that, because I can only imagine you've had a few clients that have posed the very same question. Over very many years. <laughs> Cost of living. Mark answered it. Perception's reality. But Mark, take it away. You know, no, look, the, the reality is this. Th there's reality and then there's perception. When you deal with perception, when you tell people that they're better off than they think they are, there's only two conclusions they can reach. One of them is that they do not understand their own lives at all. The other is that you do not understand their lives at all. Um, <laughs> they're more likely to go with the second than the first. Um, You've noticed the margin of error on people not understanding their own lives is somewhat low. People really tend to believe that they understand their own lives pretty well. I mean, odd, strange as that may seem. So it, it is a difficult needle to thread. But there, and there is a divergent reality here. We're looking at huge economic growth. We're looking at huge job growth. We're looking at huge declines in unemployment. But we're also looking at people's incomes after inflation, after taxes, after inflation, after everything, have actually gone down in each of the last six months. Now, why is that? Well, it's because the government was giving away money for a while, and that increased people's income, and they stopped giving away money uh, at the, uh, after, the, uh, after the pandemic. Um, so that helped to reduce people's incomes somewhat. Uh, inflation eats away people's incomes. So the reality is, while the economy is expanded, this abstraction we call the economy, while jobs are being created, those jobs are actually being created for relatively few people. I mean, unemployment went, unemployment rate went down from 4 to 3.8, two-tenths of 1%. 100% of people are paying more for the stuff that they're buying, and that's really the problem. Um, and so there is a big, a big divergence between economic growth on the one hand and what people can afford to buy on the other. Okay, gentlemen, we will be back in a minute, but we have to pay a few bills. Gibbs, did you know, as a coffee drinker, that 90% of the coffee from the grocery store is actually stale? Oh, God. You heard that, right? The coffee you know and think you love needs an upgrade. Instead of buying the same old, same old stale grocery store coffee, let Trade Coffee send you something freshly roasted that you're literally guaranteed to love. Murphy, I got to tell you, when I get up in the morning, I really love a nice, big, hot, full body roast cup of coffee. That's what sort of gets me going. And Trade sells the freshest roasted and ethically sourced beans from America's best independent roasters. They ship free to you as often as you like, whole or ground. Whether you're a coffee nerd like me or you just want a better daily cup, Trade's real coffee experts taste test over 400 roasts and use technology to match you and your ideal coffee based on your preferences and brewing methods. So take the coffee quiz and get started. Trade Coffee guarantees you'll love your first bag or they'll replace it for free. You know, I love this business because imagine you've got a great small coffee maker, you're a coffee fiend, you care about your quality, and you go to the big grocery store and they say, yeah, it ain't cheap enough for stale enough. Trade solves their problem because they go into trade system and that matching quiz you talked about matches up people with exact small batch, wonderfully made coffee. So if you're a coffee person, you've got to check this out. Take the coffee quiz and then find out why Trade has been featured by the New York Times, Wired GQ, and has already delivered, get this, over 5 
million bags of coffee. People love trade coffee. Their subscription is no hassle. Skip shipments, change your frequency, or cancel anytime you are in control. Take the quiz like we did. It told me, yes, you like strong coffee in the morning. And for our listeners right now, Trade Coffee is offering a total of $20 off your first three bags when you go to drinktrade.com slash hacks. To get started, take their quiz at drinktrade.com slash hacks and start your journey to your perfect cup. That's drinktrade.com slash hacks for $20 off your first three bags. Check it out in Detroit. Joe Murphy, coffee fanatic, loves it. He's a subscriber. He says, give it a try. Yeah, you got to look at the real purchasing power of wages. That's how people live. And when somebody shows them a chart saying, you should love me because we're down to full employment technically at 3.8, they're like, yeah, all I know is uh, I want to get a new flat screen. And one, I got to wait six weeks because of supply chain at best. And two, there's no discounts anymore, and it's more expensive than it used to be. And groceries are through the moon. I was talking to uh, one of my favorite restaurant dives I hang out at here in L.A., a secret location of a lot of anti-Trump plotting. And they were talking about chicken cost is murdering them and the inputs. The secret to the restaurant business is low food cost and you know, they're getting killed. So if that perception is bad, do you think, I mean, I'm kind of with Mark, get to kitchen table economics, pound on stuff that moves the needle there and try to get some credit for infrastructure. Now to your point, Gibbs, when they start digging though, you make Mike Murphy wait in traffic and I want to know who to vote against with all the orange cones. So I'm suggesting a reversible sign that says construction brought to you by Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans. And the minute after the election, you can flip it around to say Joe Biden. But the infrastructure stuff is good meat and potato politics. I agree. Mark, so in your polling, the follow up, what do you think, what do you see out there that people are screaming that politicians in general, the political class, both parties, either party, what are they missing? What are they misreading in the radar? Anything pop out at you? And let me go back to your point. I'm going to build on one second. The economic, ind- you know, people look at all kinds of economic in- indicators, unemployment, GDP growth. The one that is most important politically that people never look at is change in real disposable income. And that's the most important politically because it measures the impact of inflation and wage growth and unemployment, all those things into one. It has to do with what people can buy when they reach into their wallets. So that's a critically important economic indicator from a political point of view uh, to watch. In terms of, you know, what the American public sees, the American public sees a couple of things. First of all, they see politicians fighting with each other instead of getting things done, whether it's fighting within the parties, between the parties. As far as they're concerned, not much is getting done. And there's a lot of infighting going on that has nothing to do with them and everything to do with, from their perspective, politicians pursuing their own political interests instead of the public interest. So major disconnect there. The other major disconnect is on the economy. Uh, On the one hand, you have, you know, uh, Democrats who are cheering on the economy, saying how great it is, and people saying, wait a second, I'm not sure that's true. And you have Republicans wanting still to take away health care, to raise taxes on half the country, Um, uh, all kinds of crazy ideas coming out of Republicans for the economy these days. And people are saying they don't get it either. They're on the side of these big corporations that are raising our prices, and they want to raise our taxes now on top of it. So, 
people are looking at both parties and saying, I'm not sure they really understand what's going on in my life. They're really focused on their own political interests, not mine. Mark, what, we, we've already put you in the political office at the White House to sort of think through kind of approval ratings there. But how, how do you see or, or how would you advise some of your own clients up on Capitol Hill? So to your point on that prescription drug legislation or some aspect or component of what Murphy hates in Build Back Better is still popular in and of itself. And we know it will do things uh, that will Im- improve the cost structure in people's lives, whether it's making their childcare less expensive or their prescription drugs or their healthcare more expensive. How, how do you see and what do you think Democrats should be doing to get into fights about these issues now to set a little bit of the tone for this election? Because as you said, people, they may not love the fighting now, but at some point they're going to have to choose a vision come November. How, how do Democrats or how do you see Democrats setting up that fight uh, as we head closer and closer to an election on the issues that are going to really matter. Well, look, and the reality, I think, is pretty straightforward. There are pieces of legislation that are part of that amorphous build back better, like the prescription drug piece uh, that, that can be looked at separately, can be considered separately, can be voted on separately. I'd love to see a fight on prescription drug legislation uh, between Democrats and Republicans. Um, and there are various ways to go at that prescription drug legislation. There are different versions of it. I try them all uh, and see what we can get past. There's a lot of ways to reduce prescription drug prices. Uh, we ought to be fighting about how to best to do it and, and trying to do it. We got to get caught trying to reduce prescription drug prices. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Yeah, I think there's a great enemy in the PBMs. Just beside, it's always the big drug companies. Well, the guys in the middle with these black box markup machines are not getting the attention they deserve. There's good politics there. There's no question. I get, there's a lot of ways to, to fight the fight, a lot of ways to deal with the issue. But right now, it's it's not it's barely on the radar screen. It needs to be flashing big. And how, yeah, and, and, and I think the challenge that, you know, obviously is going to bedevil this administration, any administration in Congress is, and, and maybe you delay this fight a month or two, because um, one of the challenges is going to be breaking through right now, as all of us know, um, there's going to be a, a, it's, it's really hard to get <laughs> and make news right now on anything that isn't around Ukraine, displaced persons, uh, on the Polish border, feeding them, uh, the gruesome pictures that are coming out now. I mean, this, this could easily be, you know, a, a later spring, early summer fight that helps set up something like this. But I, I agree with you, Mark, most of all, get caught trying. Um, I think this idea that, that Democrats kind of climb the mountain, um, only in December to have uh, the, the journey uh, be too far to get done because of Joe Manchin and others um, doesn't mean you can't do this all over again. doesn't have to be a $3 trillion or $4 trillion bill. It can be something as simple as just cutting prescription drug costs for, uh, for working families that can really resonate and, uh, and set up a lot of campaigns. Absolutely. The reality is we're, we're in a budget and appropriations fight right now trying to to, to make sure the country is funded, to make sure that the aid for Ukraine is funded. So for the next couple of weeks here, uh, there, there are other things on the agenda. We're going to have a Supreme Court nomination. It's very hard to get noticed in this climate. But if you're not trying to get noticed, you're certainly not. And if you're working hard at it, you still may not ha- have it happen. But if you're not working at it at all, it's never going to happen. Yeah, and I think right now you have some time to think through the offensive you get to launch and actually organize it. 
um, which is something in the communication side they've been terrible at on their domestic plan. If they had a clean launch, and again, I'm against any of this socialist uh, uh, chicanery that you guys are trying to foist on the American people, but just the politics of it, if you had a price of drugs offense and you had a child care offense and you were 24-7 on those two things with smaller legislative bills you could get a mansion deal on, uh, that would be about as good of a fighting set of issues that they could try to go into the fall with. And then hopefully, one, just hopefully, uh, there's a good outcome to the Ukraine. And second, Ukraine is a platform for Biden to shake the weakness mentality that AOC and his own congressional wackadoodles gave him in the domestic policy thing and uh, and be a, a better Biden to try to close it and, and have a, you know, have an outcome that's not a midterm wipeout. Uh, Mark, for you, the question that I think resonates around political circles, uh, you can tell me about on the Democratic side, is how much should the midterms be about meat and potatoes, stuff like that, and trying to prop up Biden? Or how much is it complaining about Trump again and saying the Republicans want to burn up the Constitution and January 6th and the issues that have great passion behind them, even with an apostate like me, but out in voter world doesn't talk much about the price of gas or child care. Uh, it's just good therapy for Democrat base groups that are so angry uh, and justifiably so about a bunch of that stuff. What, what is your advice to your clients on it? Is the, is the TV ad for October about Trump and the Republicans want to come back and steal democracy or is it about child care and drugs? Well, look, I, I think we live in a world where we need somewhat different messages for somewhat different audiences. And we have a world in which we can actually deliver somewhat me- different messages to somewhat different audiences. In today's midterms, getting out the, the ones based turnout, getting them excited, getting them riled up is critically important. There's no question about that. And the message that's going to get that base riled up may well be different from the message that's going to get those sort of relatively few but still critically important moderate swing voters in those districts that are still winnable, where, where there is going to be a close contest, getting those people on board. So you may have different kinds of messages for different kinds of constituencies. I will say this, though. I, I think we've learned. I'm going to get hate mail about this for sure. But I oh, think we've join learned. the club. Yeah. <laughs> to see the stuff Gibbs gets. Good club. But I, I think we've learned that just attacking Donald Trump is not sufficient. Um, you know, we saw this in 2016. We saw it in 20, uh, in, in 20, sorry, we saw it in 2020. We saw it in 2022, uh, 2021. We're going to see it in 2022 if we don't, if we're not careful. It just is not sufficient to attack Donald Trump. Voters who are sort of hold the key here and can go either way do not look at every Republican politician as like Donald Trump. Uh, in fact, they look at many Republican politicians as different than Donald Trump. Donald Trump is in some ways sui generis. So trying to tar everybody with that feather is not really going to work. And I think we know that pretty well by this point. I don't disagree at all. I think that's, I think we've saw this, you know, whether it was in Virginia, in other places, that's not necessarily the spaghetti that'll stick to everybody else. And, uh, and look, it's, it's, it requires us to think through a better series of campaigns, right? It requires us to think through a series of issues that I speak, think speak more directly to what Mark, you've talked about, which are sort of the kitchen table issues. All right, we're going to take a minute to pay the bills and we'll be right back. 
You know, Gibbsy, we joke around a lot here on Hacks on Tap, but I have a serious matter for you. I think we're going to need to find somebody with a gray van to do an intervention. An intervention? An intervention. Our friend David Axelrod has fallen under a complete hypnotic spell every time I bring up the Helix mattress. He got one of these. You know, the nice thing about doing these ads here on Hacks on Tap is we, we get samples, and he has been absolutely captivated, captivated by his Helix mattress. And I think I know what started it all. How did that happen? He went online and he took the two to three minute Helix sleep quiz. You know, it only takes you two minutes and it matches your body type to sleep preferences and pitches to you electronically the perfect mattress. I mean, why would you buy a mattress that's made for somebody else? After you take the Helix quiz, it's dialed in and you get a mattress and well, you turn into Axelrod in love with it. I'm glad Axelrod took a quiz he didn't have to study for. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It was easier than registering to vote in Chicago, if you know what I mean. But anyway, he loves this thing, and I think I know why. The quiz tunes it in, and it's so easy to get, and the guarantee is good. So listeners, if you're interested, Gibbs, how do they fall under the perfect sleep experience to a Helix mattress? If you're looking for a mattress, take the quiz. You order the mattress that you're matched to, and the mattress comes right to your door, shipped for how much, Murphy? I'll fill it in for you there free. You don't ever need to go to the mattress store again. As Axe will tell you, Helix is awesome. Don't take our word for it. Take Axe's word for it. Or understand that Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. Helix has been recommended by many leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as the go-to solution for improving sleep. Just go to helixsleep.com hacks. Take their two-minute sleep quiz and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. And I'll tell you what, Gibbsy, they stand behind it. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to, this is my favorite part, you get to try your Helix mattress for 100 nights risk-free. They will pick it up for you if you don't love it. Total refund. And there are financing options and flexible payment plans, so you can start having a great sleep right away. And best of all, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash hacks. And I'll tell you what, friends, if you're like me and you have, let's just call it a spirited conversation with your beloved every night about the bedroom thermostat. She owns the only level seven Arctic quilt in all of California. Normally you have to show an Alaska driver's license to get one. So I'm always trying to turn the heat down. She turns it up. Well, Helix even has mattresses with special cooling technology, and that could mean a lot if you're in a situation like mine. I'm personally going to check that out. It's a lot more fun to go into a mattress store. You call them. You get the great offer, the great guarantee. They send it to you, and then you unbox it, which you can sell tickets to because it kind of expands out, and you've got a mattress. And we kid you not, Axelrod will not shut up about his Helix mattress. Look, if after hearing Murphy's story about the Arctic quilt, you're still listening to this ad, understand Helix has over <laughs> 12,000 five-star reviews and a billion hours slept on their mattresses. So again, take advantage of this. Do the quiz. Go to Helix, H-E-L-I-X, helixsleep.com slash hacks. One of the things that that I, I know we talk a little bit about and and has been a, a, I think a big discussion 
certainly after the 2020 race, is where you see Hispanic voters in the country. Um, and and I, I've seen certainly a lot of public polling recently that shows Hispanic voters fairly down on the, the Biden presidency, uh, you know, real mixed numbers as, as it relates to that. I assume that is driven like it is for everybody around economics and, and, and the concern for that. Where do you see the parties heading for what is obviously uh, one of the biggest emerging populations in the country? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Look, a couple of things are true here. First of all, uh, there is a segment of the Latino community that's definitely up for grabs. Um, and that segment tends to be uh, more assimilated, second, third generation. Uh, it, it tends to be um, more conservative in terms of its uh, general culture and ideological outlook. Um, but there's a segment of Latino community that's up for grabs. Um, there's also a segment of Latino community that is, you know, looks at some of the far left stuff that the, that democrats do and say you know that's not me that doesn't appeal to me it's not me it's not who i am um and i think democrats have just assumed uh, wrongly that if you say the words immigration right. uh, to a latino um that that's all you need to do and that's just not that, that's a caricature uh it's a cartoon terrible uh, caricature. of latino voters yeah. who have a wider set of varied interests immigration certainly is a concern of latino voters but we've seen this for years in, in polling Latinos. It is not their, for certain, not their only concern, not even necessarily their primary concern. Yeah, I think the Democrats have a lot to learn there. You know, it was funny during the uh, the Biden election, I was doing some anti-Trump work in Florida, and we would all, Republican voters against Trump, and we would tear our hair out because they, they kept sending uh, Kamala Harris down to Miami. And I knew what the meeting was uh, over on the Democratic side, which is, oh, voters of color. Miami's a you know majority-minority city, and we, we got to make an identity play there. Not knowing that Miami is a very complicated, multiracial, multipolar city, uh, and Biden had special baggage about some Cuba and other things like that, and she was exactly the wrong person to send with the wrong message. And they kept doing it over and over again. And we'd watch the Miami numbers, you know, get worse and stay there. But they just didn't have the formula. I think they had, you know, plan 103 for Hispanics. And it, it is a lot. As Mark says, you're so right. It is a large and complicated vote um, with with all sorts of different things going on. And if they if they see it just as an identity vote, um, they, they blow the whole thing. And, you know, I'm going to be watching Texas 23 we got a big runoff there uh, between two candidates, but that's a potential Republican pickup, uh, and uh, that's going to be a real test of the Democrats in a tough year, have a working strategy uh, in, in Texas for Latino voters. Yeah, I look, I remember talking about this after the 2012 reelection for President Obama, and, and we would tell people, you know, Hispanic voters, their biggest concern were, the two biggest concerns uh, were um, healthcare costs and education. And people would look at us like, really? Wow. And it's like, Jesus Christ, guys, go, go, you know, do a, a, do a half bad poll and you'll figure out as Mark said, it's not just identity issues, um, or not even identity issues that are, are the biggest thing there. I, I think again, and I said this last week when we did the, our state of the union podcast, I think one of the biggest moments domestically in the domestic section, the non-Ukraine section, 
of the State of the Union speech for Joe Biden was the moment around not just not defunding the police, but funding the police and, and what that means. And I think those are the types of cues that a lot of voters, even even Democratic base voters, need to hear uh, and particularly reachable voters in the midterm need to hear so that that caricature isn't just way, way out there on the left. That's not the base of the party. That's not where the party should be going. Uh, and I think that was a big, big moment. I, I, I probably just a blip at the, at the time, but I think something that you'll see recycled and said a lot by, uh, by Democrats and in some sort of advertising, as you said, Mark, reaching the people with different messages that will be important as we get closer and closer to November. Yeah. And I just want to say, this is Gibbs talking. So direct your hate mail to him when you hear me say this, but uh, <laughs> no, it's actually, it's Melman really. But uh, look, one of the things that we've learned here is that the act, the sort of left activist core in various communities is very important to us politically on the one hand. On the other hand, it's not representative, necessarily representative of the community. When we have, you know, left Latinos saying you got to say Latinx and we have a majority of Latinos saying that's not Spanish. (laughs) Don't don't try to change my language. (laughs) And when we have people from Black Lives Matter, important folks, important cause but advocating defunding the police, that's not necessarily speaking for the black community as a whole. In fact, the majority of black Americans don't want to defund the police. So we can't just assume that the sort of left activist core in these various communities actually speaks for the majority of those communities. That's a mistake we've made in the past. We got to stop making it. Yeah. I, I want to, you know, put a spotlight on that and maybe we're talking for a minute you um you were very involved in an independent expenditure in the big special election last year in Ohio. I think it was the 11th CD. Am I right about that? Do I have the number? Yes, right? it was. Yeah, and that's a situation where there was a a full colonel in the army of uh, it's an African American district. Marcia Fudge had retired, open seat, huge primary. Your candidate that you were helping started way behind the front runner, who everybody thought would win in the conventional wisdom who was a you know, full colonel in the Bernie apparat. And it, that race, to me, really proved that the old saw that the left just totally dominates, the movement left dominates Democratic primaries isn't true. Did you learn a few lessons watching the 20 points of, of public opinion move and eventually an upset victory for Chantel Brown? So what did you learn there? What surprised you? And what's the lesson for the Democratic Party? Well, it, it, it's a, a lot of lessons, and you really just articulated them. One is... The, the center left can beat the far left there uh, over and over again in primaries. The truth is uh, we were involved in about 30 uh, primaries in the last cycle, uh, whether it was at the presidential level where Joe Biden emerged over Bernie Sanders or at the congressional level where people like Chantel Brown defeated Nina Turner. Um, when the center left uh, stands up for itself, makes itself known, we can uh, we can win races. Um, and, and beat the far left. So that's one set lesson. The second lesson is that, as I said before, these folks on the far left don't necessarily represent the views and values of all the people that they claim to represent. That's right. very clear. Right. Um, third, people care, and Democrats, you know, there's, you could say there's a civil war going on in the Republican Party. Uh, I think one side's pretty much won it, but uh, the bad side. Hang but on, the, hang uh, on. We're, we're, we're the Ukrainians. We're small but feisty here on the Never Trump world. And send us weapons, by the way. We could use a few anti-tank rockets, but go ahead. I think people sent you a lot of weapons in the last cycle. And I hope they keep coming. 
But look, the the uh, we don't have such a we, we don't have quite as uh, intense a battle going on inside the Democratic Party uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, when you have people like Nina Turner, who literally said that voting for Joe Biden was like eating half a bowl of shit. Someone like Nina Turner, who voted against the Democratic Party platform because it didn't have all the far left stuff in it that she wanted. That is just not where Democrats are. Moderate Democrats, center left Democrats really do have the majority in the party. And when they understand where the, some of these folks on the far left are coming from, they're happy to reject them. What's your organization called, by the way? Because I know you, you're in a lot of these primaries with making that. Fight. So uh, that organization, Democratic Majority for Israel PAC, the MFI PAC, uh, was the uh, organization involved there. And people can follow it online and you guys have a Twitter feed and everything for center-left yes. Democrats that like to fight? Good. And now a word from our sponsors. You know, every year people look to shake things up. They try new diets, new workout routines. Mm -hmm. They have to switch something up to try to change something about their lives. Whatever you may challenge yourself to this year, there's no better way to do it than in a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds in your ears. Murphy, I know you love these. Yeah, I have a pair and I use them. They have a lot of advantages. First of all, they won't fall out of your ears. I recently had a run-in with organized crime and they were hanging me upside down out of a window and my Raycon stayed right inside. Okay, I kid. But they do. They, they don't drop out. They look good. They sound even better. And there's also, they have a cool thing in it called the awareness mode for when you need to listen to your surroundings. I use that when I'm flying on planes and want to order something, I hit awareness mode so I can have a conversation without pulling them out. So you can take them anywhere, use them with your phone, use them to listen to this podcast or to music. And my favorite part, they have a great battery. I hate recharging things like that. I want to use it all day long. And the Raycons have never let me down. Eight hours of playtime and a 32-hour battery life. That's like a full Gibbs day in Vegas. There you go. Look, they look good. They feel good. They sound good. And they don't fall out of your ears. The battery life is great. And they're priced just right. You get quality audio at half the price of other premium audio brands. It's no wonder Raycon's everyday earbuds have over 48,000 five-star reviews. Wow. I mean, that is saying something. I mean, look, we're your special podcast friends, but we're politicians. If you don't trust us, trust 48,000 positive reviews for the Raycons. So get some. How do you do it? Well, we're always working for you. Gibbs and I went to bat, so our listeners get 15% off the already value-priced and high-quality Raycon earbuds. All you do is go to buyraycon.com slash hacks. That's buyraycon.com slash hacks to save 15% on your Raycons. Buyraycon.com slash hacks. Raycon, R-A-Y-C-O-N. Check them out. I love mine. So, Mark, Gibbs and I have this insane, unhealthy obsession with Georgia and Pennsylvania this year because there's so much interesting stuff going on, both at the primary level uh, and at the general level. I'm sure you're watching both states. What, what do you think about Pennsylvania? The, the, I'll, I'll start on the Democratic side. Uh, the Fetterman versus Connor primary is interesting to me because on paper, Connor Lamb is the kind of candidate who should be able to win a general election, but Fetterman is like an improved Bernie who's got a real unpolitician vibe. What's your take on that primary? Fetterman's ahead, but it's only really started to start. What's your take? It is very interesting because 
you know, Connor Lamb is sort of the, the consummate moderate uh, mainstream center left Democrat, uh, very compelling personal story, veteran, et cetera. Um, you know, Fetterman is is the anti-politician. He is lieutenant governor of the state on the one hand. Um, but, you know, he walks around in shorts and tennis shoes and a, and a, a hoodie. And he's about 11 feet tall. I mean, he looks <laughs> like he ought to be in a steel cage going for the intercontinental belt. Exactly. And uh, yet he is not, and people like to position him as a far-left candidate. He's not consistently a far-left candidate. So he, he's a very interesting uh, character. And look, he's raised $12 million, uh, more than twice as what, uh, what Lamb has so far. I think Lamb's going to be able to close that gap uh, with, with some help from others. Um, so it, it's going to be very interesting. Uh, how that race comes out. There's another candidate in the race who is the far left candidate, um, uh, Kenyatta from Philadelphia. Um, he, I think, you know, has much less of a chance. But these two uh, sort of giants in their own way, uh, Connor Lamb and uh, and Fetterman, are going to really uh, bring very different personas. And I think it's, the difference is going to be more in their persona, uh, perhaps, than in their ideology. Um, either one of them, I think, can win that state because. Uh, Republicans have, have, you know, have a bad set of candidates, a really bad set of candidates uh, for the United States Senate in Pennsylvania. Well, I'll defend David McCormick. I think he'd be a tremendous senator, but he's kind of wiggling in a big red jumpsuit now trying to get through a Republican primary. And uh, it it is a character building experience for him, I am sure. And then you got Doc Oz, you know, who's rolled his medicine show into Pennsylvania. So I agree. That's why I'm so obsessed with it. Both primaries are full of interesting currents. Ian Melman, my obsession is Georgia, um, largely uh, based particularly on my proximity to my home state in Alabama. Uh, but watching Georgia really over the past few cycles become um, the chance to become more and more purple, if you will, uh, and, and really watching on election night that happen first with Joe Biden and then six or eight weeks later uh, with uh, Senator electing Senator Warnock and uh, Senator Ossoff. Um, to me, that's the real to me. That's the fascinating state coming into uh, 2022. You've got a contested uh, governor's race, obviously hotly contested a primary there on the Republican side, uh, and then a huge, huge uh, battle for the U.S. Senate. And, uh, you know, one of the fascinating things is you know, with Stacey Abrams and, and Senator Warnock running for reelection, that you could stand to have a state, an old southern state like Georgia, be the first state in the country to ever have a, a black governor and a black U.S. senator at the same time. What, what are you seeing down there? Well, yeah, it's a it is a fascinating case study. There's no question that with the increase in African American participation uh, in, in Georgia, uh, that there is very much a, a purple state these days. Uh, you know, Senator Warnock, I think, has done a fantastic job as senator. I think he's done a fantastic job as a politician, uh, even though he's not a politician. But I think he's done his politics extremely well uh, in the state and, frankly, around the country. Uh, he's going to be very, very formidable. I think in that race. And Stacey Abrams, of course, is, is a heroine to Democrats across the country. Um, she's th the biggest unelected name there is in Democratic politics today, by far. Um, she'll have tremendous support. Uh, she's been organizing Georgia for a long, long time, as, as you well know. Um, so it, it, it is a fascinating set of races. Um, and the Republicans are, are so divided 
uh, in part because of Trump, in important part because of Trump. But there are really tremendous divisions uh, renting the Republican Party. And you really have a very much united Democratic Party behind uh, both uh, uh, Senator Warnock and, uh, and Stacey Abrams in the governor's race. So uh, on the other hand, it is a midterm where that participation tends to decline. But obviously, African-American voters have a heck of a lot of reason to turn out and vote in this election. And by the way, I'll predict that Governor Kemp, who's running for re-election as being primaried by former Senator Perdue, backed by Trump, will beat the Trump candidate, which is an important battle in the, uh, the, the fight to save the Republican Party. Okay, I'm going to play poster here and tell you there is a 100% chance with, in 95 out of 100 cases with the 3.25% margin of error that we're going to hear some music right now. Murphy doesn't get many things right, but when he commands the button that <laughs> plays the music, it's 100%. Transitions Magazine is calling for a photo shoot already. That was artful. Uh, hey, so if you have a question for us, because it is time for the mailbag, you can send it to us at hacksontap at gmail.com, hacksontap at gmail.com. We do read them. We're sorry we can't get them all in every episode, but send them in. Number two, if you want to know what's really going on, subscribe to the Murphy and Gibbs newsletter. We talk about a lot of fun stuff in addition to what you hear on the podcast. It is free. Melman never goes a day without reading it. It comes out twice a week by email. All you got to do is go to hacksontap.bulletin.com. And while you're typing, go to hacksontap.com and check out upper right-hand corner, the store. The merch is here. The beer mugs, which are an international bestseller. We've got t-shirts. We've got coffee mugs. We got all kinds of cool merch here. So become a fashionista. Set the trend check us out for the merch okay questions Who i should enjoy start? my beer mug <laughs> an endorsement in a hundred percent of cases <laughs> exactly thank you mark mark i'm going to ask you this question from faithful listener dan who writes in i've seen reporting that the former president's hold on the republican party may be weakening this is an argument that murphy and i have all the time i was wondering <laughs> if his popularity is dropping within a group of people whose numbers are also dwindling has the number of self-identified Republicans or even Democrats decreased over time, leaving behind a concentrated group of diehards? Well, the, the reality is the number has not declined, but people have become more sorted, which is to say, once upon a time, you had moderate Republicans, you had even some liberal Republicans. Those folks are all gone. Uh, you have really only conservative Republicans left. I'm exaggerating slightly, but, but not very much. Uh, and you have a very large proportion of Trump Republicans uh, in the Republican Party. Uh, honestly, the same thing is true in the Democratic Party. You used to have conservative and moderate Democrats. You have many fewer conservative Democrats. You have much more, many more, uh, relatively speaking, liberal Democrats. So you have two parties that are much more sorted than they used to be. There used to be cross pressures. Uh, now they're not. Now all the pressures go in the same direction. Um, in terms of uh, Trump's grip on the party, there's some evidence that, it, that it's declined. Uh, but, you know, we're not going to know this for sure until we see some of the primaries that uh, Murphy referred to uh, a few minutes ago. We'll see those primaries. We'll see how well uh, Trump's candidates do. We'll see what kind of grip he has on the on the party. But still, if you look at the numbers, he's got a big grip on an awful lot of Republicans who think he is the right candidate for them in the future, was the right candidate in the past, and who believe that his big lie that the election was stolen. God help us all. If you're listening at home, I just want to make sure people understood. Mark said sorted, S-O-R-T-E-D. 
not sorted. S O R D I D. I just want to, Mark, I'm just, I'm, Very I know you're going to get some email and I just wanted to prevent <laughs> thousands of emails coming your way. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Murphy, I love this question. Uh, it comes from Andrew. I am curious what some of your favorite political campaign documentaries are. The War Room is a classic favorite of mine, Clinton 1992. What are your thoughts on this documentary and recommendations for others like it? Oh, my favorite question of the year, Andrew. Thank you. I'll give you a couple. Some of these are easier than others to track down. When Cory Booker ran against Sharp James, and I won't give you the spoiler alert, uh, for Mayor of Newark, there was a great documentary about it. I think it was called Street Fight. Uh, you can find that. It, it's a good political documentary about a real war campaign. There's the famous Maisel's Brother uh, thing, uh, documentary called Primary, where they follow sleek young Jack Kennedy around Minnesota uh, and other states taking on uh, old school politician and, and American patriot Hubert Humphrey. I really recommend that. But if you have to pick one, and this is the hardest one to find. I recommend this. To, I, I tell candidates to look at it who haven't run before. It was done. I think it was released in uh, 2014, 13. Anyway, it's called Caucus. And it is a fly-on-the-wall documentary deep inside the Republican Presidential Caucus in Iowa. It's like being a staffer there. And they follow Rick's, They follow everybody. But they start with Rick Santorum in a car with one kid and 0% in the polls all the way to victory. And it is the most accurate and fascinating. And don't, if you don't like Santorum, don't let it put you off. You actually see a different side of him that may surprise you. But it's like being a fly on the wall inside a Republican caucus in Iowa in a presidential year. And they gave extraordinary access. You see everything. It's called Caucus. It used to be on iTunes, Vudu, V-U-D-U, and another streamer. You might have to Google the heck out of it. Maybe it's on YouTube now, but Caucus is absolutely fantastic if you want to see how politics really works. Gibbs, you got any? Murphy, I like this question so much, I'm going to make this my question as well. I, like uh, like Andrew, uh, I loved um, I loved the Clinton documentary, uh, War Room. Uh, I was young. I wanted to go into politics, uh, and I loved being able to see it up close with with Carvel and with George Stephanopoulos, uh, with D.D. Myers, Bill Clinton, and others. So fascinating. But I'm going to tell you one, Murphy, you, you I think, are probably pretty familiar with this one. But I, the one I, I really love, uh, it is um, came out in 1996, but it's off of what was a humongous Senate race in 1994. Oh, yeah. I should have mentioned it. I'm, I, I'm sorry to my friend Cutler. You should have a perfect candidate which covers the race between Chuck Robb and Oliver North. It is fascinating. Um, there's some just great scenes in it. Um, and they're, they're not always, you know, they're not always the behind the scenes cheering, um, you know, thousands of cheering people scenes. I remember there's one scene where, where Chuck Robb, you know, walks into a grocery store and he's just walking up and down the aisle, trying to find anybody (laughs) to shake their hand, uh, and have a conversation with like a a candidate always does with a voter, but it's brilliant. Uh, and it's, it's, it's raw in the sense that you, you really feel and you live, um, what those strategists are feeling and, and, and you watch it really up until, uh, you know, a election night where, where the, uh, the race was, uh, was too close to call very, very late. Yeah. Very, very good idea. And I'll, I'll add one more. We're doing the film club here. I might get the name wrong, but it's kind of an interesting, it, it's not really a campaign documentary, but it's kind of current today. Cause in a former 
Russian republic that I worked in, which is now a country, Georgia. And it's called like Power Trap. And it shows a bunch of Americans go over and try to electrify Georgia. It's a great culture clash thing. And, um, <laughs> or Power Trip. Anyway, it, 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 it is, it is a, just a wonderful documentary. You get the vibe of Eastern Europe after the Soviet Union, which is kind of an interesting, uh, interesting world right now. Great question. A lot of fun to answer. Go check those out and uh, uh, watch them, and we'll talk to you next week. And let us thank our guest, pollster extraordinaire Mark Melman. Thank you so much. Let's do a few plugs for you on the way out. You've got a Twitter feed, and you write an insightful column with a lot of good contrarian stuff about uh, polling for The Hill, a little newspaper we have on Capitol Hill that all the members of Congress read. I think it's thehill.com. What's your Twitter feed? Anything else you want to plug? At Mark Melman, oddly enough. All right. Join me there. Hard to find. Yeah, really hard to find. All right. Thank you so much, Mark. Gentlemen, thank you for having me. We appreciate having you. Always a great pleasure. Thanks for deciphering the numbers for us and all the listeners. Thank you. And Gibbsy, it was great to chat with you. We'll be back soon. Have a good one. <laughs>